Welcome to the Seven Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. All right, welcome to Seven Things EMS. I'm your host, Dan Limmer. Today, we're going to talk about simulation. The topic uh, in our Seven Things series is seven things our guests would want an EMS provider to know about simulation and how it can improve their practice. Our guest today is Richard Lowe. Richard Lowe is not only uh, Vice President of Educational Initiatives here at Limmer Education, he has a long and perhaps storied history. No, no, not storied history. He's got a <laughs> long history, not only in uh, simulation, but uh, EMS, a long-term employee of uh, CAE and actually Medi before it became CAE, did a lot of simulation, a lot of teaching, a lot of EMS education. And uh, Richard, it's good to have you here. Hey, thank you, Dan. And uh, yes, yeah, storied, I think, is a great uh, great word to describe my career to this point uh, for the different things. But then thank you for having me on, and uh, thanks to the listeners for uh, tuning in. I don't think you can have a long history in uh, EMS without a little bit of uh, fun as it goes. Listen, let's, uh, we have these seven things that you wrote for us here. Do you have, a, do you have an intro? Do you want to just, just want to lead in to tell me something before I get into the seven things? Yeah, sure. So, you know, over my career, you know, we use simulation. And um, before I kind of got into the medical simulation world in a hardcore way, you know, we just, we called it scenarios. We didn't really call it simulation. And I think sometimes we don't even know that we're doing simulation as an educational format as educators, or that as a as a learner, that were there's actually learning objectives and performance measures and things that are behind simulation um, to look at us. So I, I think today I really want to kind of just talk about that and um, you know point people in a direction that says, hey, you know, you're you're actually using an educational format when you're doing simulation, and it can improve your practice, um, improve patient care. So um, that's kind of where I was thinking uh, we would go with this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that think that simulation has to be uh, fancy and in a big environment with cameras and a separate room where somebody uh, is there. And I think simulation can take a lot of different uh, ways. And when we're talking to the actual uh, EMT or AEMT or paramedic on the street, we're not talking about just big simulation centers. We could be talking about squad training, uh, training in the you know, in your classroom to get your certification, um, and maybe just interesting stuff you can do along the way. Yeah, you know, people think of uh, when they go to an EMT class, and one of the first things that they learn to do with each other is uh, patient assessment. You know, they do vital signs on each other and, um, and ask the sample questions and those types of rudimentary things. And that is simulation. That, that, that's a form of simulation. And I think that, you know, it's kind of lost on folks, kind of the, the, those pieces and parts. I think that's a great uh, segue in because in your seven things, the first one is skills training and that, you know, we do have mannequins and we're using uh, those for skills. Uh, tell me about that. 
Yeah, so skills training is a really big part of simulation. And um, and skills training can take a lot of different forms in simulation. But the vast majority of people, when they do skills training, um, do what's called low fidelity. And I think it's important to talk just a little bit about fidelity when you talk about simulation. You've got low fidelity to high fidelity. And fidelity, meaning according to the SSIH and the Society excuse me, for Simulation and Healthcare, that defines it, you know, is that... Um, Fidelity is simulation uh, that's meaning the degree to which the simulation replicates a real event or a workplace, including the environment, the psychological, the physical areas of what we do. So a skills training, say Mr. Bighead, and we'll take airway as an example. So you use your Mr. Bighead airway trainer and you lay out all your pieces of your airway um, equipment. And then you sit and you just kind of walk through the steps of putting in an airway. There's no time stretch. There's no pressure to do something. It's really just kind of going through that rudimentary skills. And that's probably the lowest fidelity in what we talk about with skills training. Or like I said, vital signs. You know, you, you use a partner and you put the blood pressure cuff on and you deal with those types of things. And there's probably immediate feedback right there. Uh, and that's skills training. Now, in the National Registry practicals for, you know, first responder and EMTs, you had a state, you have stations, and even a paramedic that are basically skills stations and, and you go through those things. There's no feedback. There's no anything. Um, but that's still considered low fidelity skills training. Um, for that. And so that's the first kind of piece. And I think most people are familiar with that. And you use it to, you know, learn techniques or new piece of equipment that comes into your, uh, comes into your squad or your, your ambulance service or your rescue team or whatever to get familiar with that, that equipment. And there's nothing really built around it except for, you know, pressing the buttons or, you know, putting in an oral airway or learning how to use an eye gel or something like that. You know, as you go uh, from the individual mannequin and the individual skills training we're talking about here, it looks to me when I was looking over the next things you wrote, we're now upping the ante quite a bit into simulation, talking about uh, problem solving and clinical reasoning and judgment. Um, before we go into those, is is there something, you know, people are saying, well, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's plastic, it doesn't seem real. You know, what would you say to the to the EMT or the AEMT or the paramedic that's that's got a program that there are an agency that's teaching uh, using simulation, how would you say to the person to go there, how do you interact? How do you get the most out of simulation training? I think the biggest thing is that there's a, a, a depending on the level that you're using or the fidelity that you're trying to, to go for, um, as an educator first, you have to really understand like the, the pyramids of, of, of education. So if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, for instance, or something like that, you still, you have that in simulation, you know, the very bottom um, of that thing, you know, you got to accommodate those needs. It really is that skills piece. And then after that, then you start to get into the application pieces. And then very at the top, you have the critical thinking um, part and you can build your simulation in that same way. So what we're talking about here is really the very bottom, the foundational area of simulation. 
and what I think people get nervous about simulation is they think they have to have a scenario and they think that they're constantly being tested. Um, you know, they're using simulation almost as a negative reinforcement tool, Dan. So uh, that's the thing that concerns me rather than an educational process. This should be, um, you know, it should have a level of fun. It should have a level of engagement that's more than, you know, just sitting there saying, oh, you got that. No, you didn't get this. Oh, you got that. You didn't get this. I've never been a fan of checklists and skills stuff because, you know, in the real world, when we talk about, we'll get to later in the simulation, when you apply critical thinking, hey, man, there may be times where you can't follow that checklist. You've got to be smart enough to be able to say, hey, I know what the basic principles are, and I got to apply them in this way because it's the only way that makes sense. And and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. We talk about more of a, the high fidelity and the critical thinking stuff. Well, let's roll into the next uh, the seven things. That uh, you believe that there's a that there's a place as, that simulation provides problem solving and clinical reasoning experience. Yeah. So the next kind of level up that pyramid, if you start to think about it like that, is that you know now you want to take those skills and you and you want to put them in such a way that they have to pick which skill to use when um, for that. And in the beginning, it's very you know it's it, it's pretty rudimentary as far as what we want to do. Oh, you want to manage the airway. So as an EMT basic, you have a handful of tools that you can use to manage the airway. And so you have to decide when to use the tools. When do I need to manage the airway? And then, okay, the situation on which is the best tool to use um, for that. And, you know, we have things that, you know, for instance, an oral airway, you can't have a gag reflex and we want people to be, you know, in that unconscious or semi-conscious state because that's when they're not going to have their gag reflex per se. And, you know, to be able to put in an oral airway or maybe they're awake enough and their injuries are such that we can put them on their side to manage their airway or something like that. And for this level of simulation, again, it, it can be very low fidelity. You don't you know, you need specialized equipment. Heck, you could use a, a partner and in, in the floor of the classroom, um, you know, to practice a just putting people in the in a better airway position um, for that. Or you could start to up the ante and start to use, you know, uh, you could use a high-fidelity mannequin um, for that. So the other thing is that now maybe your equipment isn't quite laid out beautifully. Now you're maybe working out of the airway bag. I'll stick with that airway theme because it kind of ties stuff together. But now you have to open the airway bag, find the right piece of equipment um, and put that in. And then as we all know, you know, uh, as providers, things start to get thrown everywhere. And um, then you might lose something, you know, can't find the suction catheter or whatever. And that's real world. Now, the interesting thing here is, again, we're not using this as um you know, a, a, a punitive or negative reinforcement thing. Lots of times as an educator, because you have a learning objective that, hey, you want them to manage the airway using X, Y, Z, you may have a teachable moment. You might have stoppage time, as, as some of my friends call it, right, where they, they stop the simulation or stop the situation and they have a discussion around what they're doing with, in this case, like the airway. And, and why did you make that choice to do this here uh, for that rather than 
uh, that's right or that's wrong or checklist that says, oh, you missed X, Y, Z. Now, you didn't put your gloves on, so you failed this station. That's that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, working through that process uh, of deciding, you know, hey, these are the, these are my things that I want to do. This is the, the problem that I have, and here's what I can do to solve that. And it doesn't need to be the entire scenario from soup to nuts, you know, where they get called, they show up, whatever. It could be just that little piece of managing the airway. So, you know, your instructions ahead of time, pre-debriefing, you can say that, you know, you don't have you don't have to worry about scene safety. All that you're going to go in and, and assess and manage and treat the airway of this patient, and that's it. And they're just going to do that little cutout out of it. <laughs> I think that's, I think that makes a lot of sense because anybody that's been out there has been listening to this knows that not every call goes well. So the problem solving is really important. Uh, like you say, finding something or not finding something in the bag and the clinical reasoning for different levels. And the other thing that I'll add is that, um, in times when we've been forced through COVID to use more simulation to replicate experiences, we're doing this more and more that we are using simulation in the classroom to replace other activities that we couldn't do. Now we'll break out of COVID, hopefully at some time here, but that leaves us with a lot of experience with doing things in the classroom. And hopefully we can build on that and, and building on that. The next thing you say um, is clinical judgment, that simulation can be used uh, to improve clinical judgment. Yeah, so this is the the area that I think most people, when they think about simulation, this is where they think about you know simulation. They do this full blown scenario. They maybe they have a high fidelity mannequin, or maybe they've built a Franken mannequin, as I used to say, because I used to build them myself. Where you got an airway head, an IV arm, a CPR torso, you know, something like that, where you're going to put all of the different things together into one simulation, which makes it um, a little little bit more realistic right so they're gonna they probably you're gonna probably give them a pre-simulation briefing where they they have to manage this scene let's say um for that where they're gonna come in and do that now that's not to say that you you can't have pieces of the problem solving and that sort of stuff built into this um it, it really depends on whether you're in the formative stage of education or you're starting to move from the formative to that assessment stage of of education where you know, you're looking at their competence and mastery of these skills. So in this case, you know, we'll stick with the airway theme again um, for that. And in this case, we might build the scenario now into that more of a high fidelity realm. So we might have a wrecked car. We may have a high fidelity mannequin behind the wheel of the wrecked car. Um, they That mannequin has an airway issue. That's going to be their primary focus. They may have some cut scrapes, maybe a broken limb or something like that um, uh, on there. And um, all they're going to get for information as they walk into the scene is that, you know, what they would get from, you know, being called to the scene. So an auto accident, vehicle versus light pole or whatever. And as they walk up, they'll need to do that scene safety. They'll need to do the assessment of the scene. They'll need to look to see if they need more resources. And as they approach the car and they start to do their assessment, they're going to have to make those clinical judgments of, you know, does this need rapid extrication before I can do anything? Is there some little piece of uh, my my treatment of, in this case, we're going to have a compromised airway of, 
I can manage somewhat of that airway before I get them out of the vehicle. Um, and they're going to need to make these kinds of assessments and judgments and working with their, with their team. And so those challenges that you really see in the real, real world become, you know, part of that simulation. Now, I don't want to run away from the fact that we're still as educators and you still want to make sure that you have learning objectives and they're following those, the, you know, you're following those learning objectives and we're not taking a left turn at Albuquerque. In this type of simulation, you may or may not have stoppage time. Now, if they're still really formative, and this is the first few of these that they're doing, they're putting them all together, you might have that stoppage time or those teachable moments where you call a pause to the simulation and you talk about what they're doing, or maybe you talk about a drug that they're going to give, or in this case, the airway, you know, what they can and can't do, you know, in the vehicle and you might have them try different things and then you back up and you start again and they figure out, okay, I can do this. And then they, they move on down the road. Or it could be that, you know, you're checking competence and mastery. In that case, you, you let them roll. And if they take that left turn at Albuquerque, you wait to the next thing, which we'll get into is debriefing to kind of bring those points home. Um, for that. And that makes it tougher on you because you don't want to have negative transfer and learning. So if they do something that, you know, could have been super dangerous, but they get away with it um, for in the simulation, you'll want to be sure that you hit that in the debriefing so that they don't walk away with, hey, this is what we can do. Because one thing that we know from the military and from doing different things is is we fight like we train, right? So if we do something in training and we get away with it, we're more likely to do it in the real world. And if it would be something that would endanger the EMT or the patient, we want to be very careful about that. So as we will move from the kind of the clinical side, we're going to get into a few uh, things about um, simulation like debriefing in a second. But what I'm hearing is a common thread through the first things that you said is that simulation requires a certain amount of commitment, both on the educator and as the student participant, that you've really <laughs> got to be committed to this or it's not going to work. Yeah, there's a lot of work. I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, uh, they, they, they think simulation is going to be an easy, easy out for their educational uh, format. Look, we're going to do a bunch of scenarios and they just kind of come up with them off the cuff, um, kind of pull them out of their rear end. Uh, we've all been there, you know, and, and probably have done that in our EMS careers um, for that. But that's not simulation. That's not what I'm talking. That's more like playing stump the gump. And you know, I'm not going to say that no learning can come from that because I'm sure that there are some. But if you haven't planned well and you haven't like made a very tight simulation that follows your learning objectives, and at the end of the day, I want the students to learn X, Y, Z, or be able to discuss this or perform that, then you really don't know where you're going or where you're going to end up. And that's not a good kind of formula for education. Um, when you're using simulation. So no matter what you're doing, no matter if you're informative or, you know, looking for competency or mastery or any of the things I talked about, you really need to spend some time and really lay through the learning objectives. You heard me say that a bunch. Uh, I'm a stickler for them. Learning objectives are important. Any kind of educational thing that we do, and even more so with 
you know, simulation because you don't necessarily have a whiteboard that you're going to throw those learning objectives up over and over again. All right. So I think that that's probably a good way to lead into some of these uh, concepts of uh, simulation and especially the debriefing. Now, I know when students, you know, we obviously, liberal education, there's a lot of exam preparation, helping people with the National Registry, and people tend to rush through questions and go to the next question without reflecting on the question in front of them and really learning from it. And I would think that in a bigger picture way, simulation could be the same way, where once you get through the mannequin stuff, once you get through the cool part, you could probably easily not get value out of the reflection and the debriefing to really see what we've uh, learned or need to learn uh, after the simulation. And that's where the debriefing comes in. Yeah, and I think debriefing is oftentimes pushed aside or, or rushed or um, plain on forgotten when we talk about simulation as an educational tool. And I think that debriefing is... is I almost would say it's one of the most important pieces um, of what we need to do, not just in simulation, but in practice, Dan. I mean, in clinical practice, you should be debriefing every single call that you go on. There is learning that comes every day. Um, I, I know I'm a, I say all the time, a lifelong learner. I love to learn. And, and, Every time we have conversations in, in medicine or business or things that I'm interested in, I, I feel like I, I'm trying to learn something. And I think we need to do that as EMS providers. You know, medicine changes so rapidly over time. And, and yeah, it's a practice. You know, we practice sports, right, to get it right. Well, we practice medicine in the same way, although there's a scientific component to that practice and research we'll talk about a little bit later. So debriefing the simulation is, I just think, critically important. And it's a skill, just like anything else. A good debriefing is a skill, and it should follow a set pattern. Now, we could probably spend podcasts talking about the different ways to debrief and, and going through the different things. I, I use a four-step process. It's very simple um, on there. And, and it's a recipe that I've used really my whole career. Um, when I was lucky enough to do search and rescue is what my introduction to this was. And in search and rescue, you always debrief your rescue after um, the, the incident. And so you can say, hey, you know, what would we do different? What can we learn from what we did today? What skills are we lacking? You know, whether, you know, whatever it was. And, um, and then you go out and you train and then you bring that full circle and you go back and you work on those areas. So uh, the recipe that I like, um, it starts with an introduction. And, and, and this is a, you know, in the educational realm, this may like lay out how you're going to do this every time. You may not have to do this every time with your class, but it, it lays out, you know, what your role is, what their role is, what you want to see, the, the, the interaction, that kind of stuff um, for that. It also talks about the goals of simulation, the learning objectives, etc. Now, with a real call, this might just be, you know, establishing that, hey, with your partner or your team or whatever, after each call, we're going to sit down and spend while we're driving back to the barn, um, we're going to go over the call. I mean, that could be this as simple of introduction as you want it to be. But it's really important that you establish, hey, we're going to debrief this and here's the introduction. Your next one, personal reactions, I think 
you know, even when you think about the way the Heart Association talks about ACLS training and then people's reactions and feelings and communications, you talk about this personal reactions here. And I think that's a part of EMS training we probably would normally miss if we didn't have the opportunity here. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one of the th- big buzzwords is resiliency in EMS, right? So, and now uh, we're hearing a lot about that and a lot about provider health and provider things. Listen, what every call we go on, we have a personal reaction to that call, whether we uh, are like, why the hell did you call the ambulance? Or, you know, what am I doing here? Or, oh my God, this could have been my family. Uh, there's always a a reaction that you're going to have. And same thing with simulation. Even the skills training, people have a personal reaction to like, this is stupid or whatever. There's some, there is some pieces of that. And learning gets blocked by those personal reactions, right? You, it throws up a block and, and um, for that. So it's real important to kind of get that off people's chests, like out of the way right away um, for acknowledge the realistic, the realism that's there for those personal reactions and get those out into the open. Once you do that, that kind of clears the way, you know, to start to look critically or to look at what happened, which is that next piece, the discussion of the events. Yeah, it's a great way even to handle some, you know, we always have these affective issues in education. And uh, some of that is very personal. And I think it's a great way to bring affective in. Uh, But as you say, the next one, discussion of the events seems kind of like what people would expect to be the bread and butter. But I I do think your personal reactions uh, has a lot of value. So discussion of the events. Yeah, so discussion of the events is the what happened, what what went on, why did we do what we do, um, those types of things. Maybe even challenges that we found. Uh, you know, everybody rushes to the negatives, but they should be you know positive things. Hey, what went really well? You know, um, what things do we you know do we see as a you know uh, that our team um, gels well together? And what I think here is important is that. Uh, we have this innate thing as people to um, look for blame, point fingers, do all that. I mean, it's rampant through the press right now, uh, ra- you know, rather than to stand back and say, okay, what, what can we do differently? You know, what, what's going on? And, and um, Judy Johnson Russell, one of my uh, favorite um, people in simulation, you know, and uh, for it, she's been in simulation a long time. Some of the earliest simulation research was done by Judy Johnson. You know, she likes to say, you focus on the performance, not the performer. So, so when we establish those ground rules and that introduction and how we're going to debrief, you know, that needs to be lit right there. And it says, Hey, we're not going to like point fingers at people, what they did, what they didn't do, that kind of stuff. We're going to look at the performance as a whole. And I think this is really important because when you look at a performance as a whole or the call as a whole or the simulation as a whole, now you start to see that systematic or those critical thinking areas or those things that come up that say, aha and you get those aha moments whereas if it's personal um the person that's getting hammered on uh number one gets super defensive personal reactions pop back up learning is blocked and the people that are pointing the fingers are like yeah it wasn't my problem personal reactions boom and they're blocking any learning that's coming from that because i will never do that 
Well, that's not necessarily true. So I think it's real important to focus on the performance. And that's where you're going to find your pearls of, hey, you know, what can we do better next time or what we did really well that we want to continue to do. All right. And then the summary wraps it up. Right. And so the summary is just a real simple, you know, hey, this is what we did. This is the information or the, the things that we can do better next time. Um, these are the areas we need to work on. Um, this is what really, we did this really, really well. And we should be tooting horns and throwing confetti. You know, those types of things, that's that summary. And it's pretty straightforward. And, and, and frankly, Dan, I, I don't, I don't remember any EMS call that I went on where there was not some, we did not debrief in in one way or the other. And the same thing when doing these simulations in EMS, um, there, there was a debrief. Now, I'm really advocating that people debrief the same way every time because it becomes a lifelong skill. You start them off in their in their EMS course, and as they move through their education, if they're doing this every time, it becomes a lifelong skill. They're just going to do this on calls, et cetera. It's not something that they have to move into. And so I'm a big right. advocate for that. <clears throat> All right, I want to I want to move on just so we go there, but I have to throw one more question back at you about debriefing, and I know this can vary. How long? Um, why do people sometimes skip this part? What would you say time wise? What advice would you have to try and you know keep it tight but valuable? What's your experience? Yeah, so this is a, a question that comes up all the time in simulation education, and and there's a there's a rule of thumb that says uh, if you do a simulation, your debriefing should be two times the length of your simulation. So let's say you did a 10-minute simulation. You, you want to set aside 20 minutes for debriefing. All right, so that's not a hard and fast rule. Uh, I've had, I've done, been involved in simulations and, and calls and stuff where the debriefing was incredibly short, but very poignant and very meaningful because it was really, really, really tight. And then at the same time, I've been in stuff that was debriefed over days. Um, for it and it was really long and drawn out and i think the value of debriefing really is you know as you go through these processes what needs what needs to be said what needs to be fixed what needs to be acknowledged is more important than the time that you spend on this but if you're an educator looking for you know a rule of thumb two to one right two Two times the amount of time in debriefing to the one time in, in, in simulation. All right. Well, let's roll into maybe some of those challenging calls you talked about that are longer to debrief or certainly things that involve very personal elements. You talk about high risk, low frequency, or sometimes it's called high criticality, low frequency, where we have things. Your example is a crike out in the, in the dark in the rain. But I have to tell you, I'm going to add in here um, pediatrics and also OB because people aren't getting those things uh, in the field, in the hospital like we used to. So we have a lot of things that we can use simulation for that we don't see a lot, but boy, they are important. Yeah, so when you start to think about what things can you incorporate into simulation, where is the value of simulation to improve patient care and outcomes and that sort of stuff, let's move beyond the, the introductory or formative. Let's take people that are practicing in the street, right? So where do you build simulation? In? And certainly you'd be doing some of the skills training and that sort of stuff anytime you introduce anything new. But 
I would say that one of the things you want to look at your, your people for is to building their confidence and building their mastery set. So when those high risk and low risk frequency situations come upon, they, they will, you know, they'll be able to jump on them quicker um, for that. We all know, we've all been put in a situation where we went, oh my God, this is bad. And we get a little nervous and we start to second guess what we're doing. And the time aspect of what we're doing, being timely with our treatments, um, starts to slip away. Um, so, uh, you know, I use the cricothyroidomy one, the surgical crike one, because this is a really interesting one in EMS that people, they talk about a lot, but I don't think they think about it in the context of, of reality, right? So most people will wait until the patient is stopped breathing and basically in total respiratory arrest. And then a period of time goes on before they decide, oh, I, this is the time I need to do the crike. And now they pull the stuff out and they do the crike where the crike should have been done while they were still looking you in the eye and still conscious. <laughs> yeah. Because that's going to make the difference. Um, when we crike them after they're dead, uh, very rarely do we see a- anything that, uh, any change in the outcome of the patient um, for that. And I think that's a really important thing is that the only way you get there is number one, you've, you you do it in the field and you've had like tons of surgical crikes um, for that, or we do it in simulation under simulated conditions in that high fidelity kind of way. And again, this doesn't mean you have to have a high fidelity mannequin um, for that, but you're going to put the pressure on to do this early and to do this uh, with mastery um, for that. And there's a lot of skill building and things that, that, that come onto that. You mentioned childbirth. Childbirth is a great example, right? It's something that doesn't happen very often to us in EMS, although I, I have friends that seems that they have one every week, but um, uh, I never wanted to do one in the field. And I can't, I can tell you, I came very close to having to do one, but in my whole career, I never had a, a childbirth in the field. So, um, cause I just, I just did everything in my power to know that, Hey, it's time to go rather than waiting on, on, to have this kid in front of me um, for that. But childbirth is a big one. When at CAE, we helped develop their childbirth simulator, Lucina. And I'm going to tell you, I was really skeptical of it. And um, and I was one of the people that developed it. But it became my favorite simulator. I mean, you can put people in the position to, to be delivering, a, assisting and delivering a child, you know, every three minutes almost with that thing. And uh, it's the training that comes from that is huge um, for that. And the confidence that people walk away with is, is important. One of my preceptors as an early paramedic training, Barbara McManamy at Dartmouth, um, you know, I asked her the first delivery I helped do in the, the center there in Dartmouth. I, I was, you know, we got done and she's like, you're white as a ghost and you're sweating. And she's like, what did you do? And I said, Oh, I was responsible. And she's like, no, no, no. She's having the baby. You're just there assisting it. Just remember, you've done this now slightly less than a hundred times. <laughs> That's the kind of you know the confidence building you have to have is to say to remember, hey, I've done this before, you know, and and it's going to work out. And I think that's where that's important for that high risk, low frequency stuff for for uh, on there. And just the last example that I think everybody's heard about is you know U.S. Airways Flight fifteen forty nine, Captain Sullenberg landing in the Hudson River. If you listen to his interviews, read his book, he's going to tell you that. 
they did it in simulation. <laughs> and so yeah. when all of a sudden he had to make that decision, he'd done it slightly less than a hundred times. You know, he knew exactly what to do, the procedures to take. Here's what I'm going to do. Bang, bang, bang. And it was textbook um, for that because they had done it in simulation. Well, I think what you're saying is in this case, when we have, um, you know, high risk, but low frequency, we're really going back to some of your first points. We're letting people do some problem solving and clinical reasoning and some judgment and some experience doing it, perhaps under pressure, as you say, to be able to perform better in that situation. So I'm going to roll. We've got uh, about 10 minutes left here is that we have um, practice what you preach. And I think we're, I see this wrapping up a lot of the things that we've said so far today. Yeah, so I, hopefully this comes in a nice little circle and I can put this together with a bow. But practicing what you pre preach, you can take use simulation in your organization to find out if you do what you say you do. Um, so you can come up as an instructor with a really good simulation and then put your crews through that and, and see how they perform compared to what you have in your, you can, whatever your protocols, your SOPs, your SOGs, however you do that. And do they follow them? And if they follow them, how do they do that? And, you know, what is the, uh, what does the, paperwork look like afterwards does it does it match what actually happened um, in the simulation or you know this is something that happened to some some clients remain nameless protect the innocent sort of is they did it they did this after uh having a the course with us and um they called me up and they said hey guess what we found out and i said what happened he says well we did what you were talking about is checking a practice what we preach and we found out that our providers we're doing medicine based on things that we should be doing, but our protocols had never been updated. So they were actually practicing outside their protocols and they were doing the right things, but because their protocols hadn't been updated, it looked very bad, you know, and when they look at uh, QAQI. And so they went back to their medical control doc, said, hey, this is what's going on. And they sat down at a big table and they updated all their things to reflect what was actually done in the field, which I think is, uh, you know, that's, that's what we want um, for that's doing good patient care. Or maybe you've instituted new things and um, people aren't quite there yet. You can use that simulation to to help get people to, you know, where you're preaching as far as your uh, education or SOPs and SOGs. I think full circle is a really uh, it's a great way to, to put that all together to show what this can do for providers, for how instructors can try and do better, and even then agencies and institutions, what they can do. I, I think that's fascinating. Now, your last one, simulation for research, I remember when I was a new paramedic, this was oh some time ago, but I was part of a, one of the early studies um, where they looked at the ability for EMS providers to ventilate appropriately. I mean, this was a long time ago, but this was uh, was published, and that that use of a mannequin calling people in and being able to measure amounts of ventilation and getting certain parameters um, was was pretty formative at the time, forty years ago, and that as we look to push EMS, we're going into. Um, mobile integrated healthcare. We're we're taking more and more things into the field. So research is part of simulation as well, or or vice versa, perhaps. 
right? And in the beginning, we talked about this, and I, I talked about medicine as a practice, right? And we practice, and just like uh, practice a sport, like I'm an ice hockey guy, and I, you know, you practice ice hockey, you practice skating, you practice all the pieces and the parts to put it together on the rink. Medicine is the same way. You practice the pieces and the parts. The other thing here in medicine is that there are things that are coming to research that says, hey, this is what we're going to do. I mean, how many people are still using mast pants to deal with hypoperfusion? Right? So we, we, we used to do that all the time. As a matter of fact, there was a station that tested how well you could put mast pants on, if you remember, Dan. Right? And, oh, uh, I, I remember. Uh, there's, there's people aren't even going to know what they are, but we'll, we'll continue on past there. <laughs> yeah. So, so what happens is that you can use simulation right, as part of that research piece. You can, you can actually introduce those skills, the different areas that I talked about, right? And then we can, we can look at the the outcomes in simulation and and there's some translation into the real world you mentioned uh, bagging right so that was that's one of the things that you can do there um cpr is a big one right so one of the things that we learned about was the importance of cpr and um you know skill degradation over time and that's done because of research right so and you can see that on a cpr mannequin um for that so it can help help us to know like, hey, what things do we need to practice more often um, for that in order to keep our, our, our practice high? It could be such that um, you're trying a new skill or putting a new uh, uh, procedure into place um, for that. And what's big right now is of course we don't we used to not document this very well um for it but now we can actually build research projects around this and it can benefit just not the yourself or your your team but it could benefit all of ems um for that remember we do learn vicariously right so if people have a bunch of people have done stuff and it seems to be successful and they have good research to back that up it can change practice and we see that all the time. So I think that's an important, you know, last point here is that, you know, don't forget about that research component of simulation because it can be very valuable. All right. I'm going to uh, just reread these seven things that we want people to know. And then that'll give you time to prepare because I'm going to ask you for a parting shot. I'm going to ask you for an end message. Uh, your last thing that you'd say, a little bit of oomph to tell some, what you tell someone about simulation. So we talked about the first skills training that mannequins are used for things like airway management. It doesn't have to be fancy that the, that the Fred the Head that's on the table, we're going to use to do all kinds of airway training. And that's it's low fidelity, it's skills training, and that's good. But simulation can also move into giving us um, a practice and problem solving and, and clinical reasoning when things don't go well, working under pressure, and making some of the decisions we want people to do. Clinical judgment was number three, how we have to put that all together and then have people make those judgments. I have always, you know, tell my students when we teach anaphylaxis, you know, we teach everybody like it's anaphylaxis or it's not. But most of the time, it's in between somewhere. You've got to make a judge whether it's time to give epinephrine. And I think that clinical judgment can certainly be improved in simulation. Uh, the debriefing, uh, I think sometimes it's a little amorphous for people. We gave four uh, steps to go through and do that. I really like that. The benefit of simulation in high risk, but very uncommon situations, crikes, childbirth, peds, can get us where we need to be to be more comfortable uh, in those. 
um, that we go through and we have to practice what we preach. We have to walk the walk both in simulation and in our reflection and how it affects our providers and our organizations. And then finally, simulation, that uh, really there's some things that we have to try on something other than a person, perhaps, um, whether it be a particular skill or how we apply something. And I think simulation puts us in a really great spot. Um, as Richard said, I loved um, that this isn't just for your people or your agency, that this can actually benefit EMS in general. So it gets us down to the end of the podcast. I'd love for Richard to give me a parting shot. What's the message? What would you want people to hear uh, last and perhaps do most as we uh, bring this uh, podcast to a close? I think the important thing here is we opened the chat talking about improving patient care and looking at simulation in a kind of a clinical way. And I think my parting shot here is that you can utilize simulation to improve your clinical and uh, your clinical care, your patient care, and, you know, ideally improving your patient outcome. That's the end of that. That's really the end point that we want to be at. And I would hope that people take away from this to say, number one, identify when they're actually using simulation and say and call it what it is. Um, and number two, to understand that this is a, a process that they really want to spend some time if they want it to be valuable, that they spend a little time kind of going through um, the different areas. And then lastly, just like you said, you know, simulation for research, you know, share what you learn um, for it. You know, I, I think as an educator, as a, uh, as a provider, um, I I, I want to let people know, uh, you know, hey, I, I, I learned this and um, I think this is valuable and I think that other people could, could go with that and, and to let that out. And I think that's a, a, probably the parting shot right there is, you know, share what you've learned. Don't, 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 don't put it together. Don't hide your eyes, so to speak, you know, let that, let the cat out of the bag. Well, I am very fortunate to be able to work with uh, Richard Lowe here at Limer Education. Uh, but we also got to pick his brain on his vast simulation experience. And I think that it's, I've had a great time just listening and I've learned myself. This is a, a Limer Education podcast. Just a few notes as we go through. Um, there will be a, um, a handout, a show notes that you can get that will uh, do this. And please reach out to us at Limer Education if you have questions about this, if you have other ideas uh, for a podcast, or if there's anything else that we can do for you. I'm Dan Limer. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.